Welcome to the Providence Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Marcel Van Niekerk. If you'd like to stay connected, download our app Providence Community from your phone's app store or visit our website at providencecommunity.org. I'd like to just take a moment to introduce myself. Many of you know who I am, but um, with our friends that are joining from across the nation and maybe internationally even, this is my first time that I'll be sharing. Um, my name is Marcel. Um, my wife, my son, and I actually moved um, to the States in October of 2018 to, to join the ministry here at Providence. Um, and that is, explains the accent that you can prob- probably hear. We've had a lot of fun with this accent. We actually, earlier we recorded a special little sermon for the kids. And there's this key moment where I, I actually said, you have to start relying on the power of God inside of you. And everyone in the room heard, you have to stop relying on the power of God inside of you. And it, we had to actually go back to the recording to just make sure I said the right thing. And with my accent, even though I said start, it sounded like I said, you have to stop relying. So if you caught that, please make sure you just correct that with your kids because I actually did say we have to start relying on the power of God um, in our lives. Um, but yeah, this morning as, oh sorry, this evening as we jump into this message that I'll be sharing, I just want to say this because it's important that you're probably going to see that there are some similarities between our current situation that we find ourselves and the stories that we'll be digging into and the verses we'll be referencing. But something that is really important that I want to share with you is that this message is not a call for some sort of revolutionary uprise against any form of an institution or an organization or government. Um, If that is what it's stirring in you, then I want you to go deeper today because actually the challenge is in the area of our hearts. And the place where there needs to be a revolution taking place is within our hearts and the way we set our hearts on our first love which Jesus directs and points us to throughout his whole ministry. I um, recall this great story. It's back in 2004. I'm a senior in high school. And I remember as I'm going through this transitional phase in in my life, it was a tricky and challenging time in my life. But interesting enough, I made some really poor, bad social choices, if I can call it that. And with my group of friends, I just started doing some stupid things. And it's amazing at that age, you kind of think that, oh, I'm doing this so well that my parents aren't aware of anything that's going on. Um, But we all know that's not the truth. Actually, my dad and mom were fully aware of everything that was going on. But the, the crazy thing is that despite them knowing I'm in a season where I'm making very poor decisions... I would have expected that my dad would approach me and sit me down and just point out things. But if I think back to 2004, many years ago, I'm a senior in high school. God gave my dad amazing wisdom in how he ended up handling that whole situation. This morning, or sorry, this evening, I wanna encourage you to join me on this journey. 
Um, and we're actually going to get started in John 4. And God has been using John 4 in my life this past three weeks in amazing, significant ways. I've been gripped in these passages. And I just want to provide some background. And you've probably heard this so many times, but just to create some context before we get into the, the important parts, I just want to share that in this point, um, Jesus and his disciples are actually in Judea, and they're planning to go to Galilee. And, but what Jesus announces to his disciples is that we'll be passing through Samaria. And this is totally counter-cultural for this group of Jews. And the reason for that is because the Jews, would, if they had to do this journey, they would actually take the indirect route that was a longer journey that was to the east of the River Jordan. And the reason why they would take this journey is because they hated the Samaritans. And the reason why they hated the Samaritans was because the Samaritans got involved with uh, marriages with foreigners, so the Jews actually decided that they, would, they hated them so much that they, even though the route through Samaria was shorter and, and more direct, they would rather go the indirect route, the longer journey to get from Judea to Galilee. And I want to quickly take a moment just to, to share a little side note, because I haven't taken the time to mention anything about Mother's Day. And in this moment, I just want to take a, a moment and stand still to just honor mothers. The thing that's so interesting for me is that this is clearly, this Samaria is a tough region to impact. And I just find it so interesting that one of the very first individuals, I'm not saying it is the first individual, but from the context we have over here, it seems like this person is one of the first individuals that Jesus meets and transforms for the purpose of bringing the gospel to this area called Samaria. And this person is considered filthy, frowned upon, called out a sinner. And in this time, in Eastern culture, in this context, this person is the lowliest person you can imagine, and it is the woman at the well. And the thing that hits me is the fact that this person that is so frowned upon, that is called out, that is pushed aside, that this is the very, one of the, God's first picks for his great plan in this region. The thing that hits me is that this person that the people despise, this woman, is a priority in God's plan. The thing that hits me is that this person that no one values, this woman that people call names, and they consider her as a sinner and whatever you want to call, is valued by God and is actually called by God. And we don't know whether this woman is a mother or not, but I want to take just a moment to just share something with the mothers. And I'm not just talking about the mothers who are biological mothers. I'm even talking to the young ladies who in the future you are called to become a mother. I'm talking to those ladies that we don't know what the circumstances are, but maybe the only role that you have as a mother is being a spiritual mother or parenting someone that isn't even your own child. I'm even talking to those mothers that have suffered great loss in ways that are unexplainable. 
But the thing that I want to share with you today is that you are part of God's first pick for the plans that he has in his kingdom. You are a priority in God's plan. And you, as a mother, you are valued and you called. And now I want to talk to the husbands, and I'm talking to myself, and I'm talking, I want to talk to the young men, because you are called to one day become husbands. I want to ask you this question. How are you polishing? How are you helping to um, perfect the little imperfections? How are you contributing towards honoring and establishing this very high value and calling and purpose that God has placed on your wife? Are you contributing to this calling or purpose or are you currently breaking it down? And I said this is just going to be a little side note and that really is what it, that's what it is. So I want to I wanna remind the mothers who you are and what you've been called for. And the husbands out there, I want to challenge you to the role that we are to fulfill in making sure that our um, wives are walking in that purpose and that destiny. I want to get back to John 4, and I want to invite you. I'm reading from the NIV version, but I want you to just join me from verse 4. And it says this, um, now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Verse 9, The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Because you Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you the living water. Verse 11, Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and this well is deep. Where can you get this living water that you're talking about? And Jesus answers, Are you great? Uh, um, sorry, the woman says, Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did all his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up into eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. And she said, I have no husband. She replied, Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband because the fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. It feels like I want to put my glasses down in this moment, and it feels like the very wise thing to do. The fact is I cannot see without them, but there are some key topics or themes in this, this portion of Scripture that I just want to highlight and that we need to hold on as we're journeying together. One of them is this picture or this theme of a husband and a wife, but there's also this theme of a broken marriage. 
Another very prominent theme is the spring of living water that leads to eternal life. And we see that from verse 19 going on, this discussion actually turns to how the Samaritans have been removed from their place of worship. The question I want to ask you, are there deeper truths within John 4 that we need to discover and how can we discover it? Now, to do that, I want to invite you to go to Jeremiah 2, and we're going to be reading from verse 1. I'm reading from the NIV again, but we're going to dive into verse 1, um, verse one and this is Jeremiah the prophet that is um, sharing here. The word of the Lord came to me, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride... You loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not shown. So here we are two verses into Jeremiah 2, and some of these key themes are already coming up. We see over here that there's this reference to a marriage vow. And what is this marriage vow that Jeremiah is referencing? This is speaking of the Sinai covenant um, between God and the nation of Israel. And within the Sinai covenant, God is Israel's husband. Now let's go on from there. Verse three, it says, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruit of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. This word holy, you've heard this so many times, but it talks about being set apart for God's use. So in Israel's devotion to God, God is a husband unto Israel, protecting Israel, taking care of Israel in the midst of all the enemies. And then as you read verses 4 to 8, we're not going to read each of them, but I'm going to explain to you what happens is we see that despite all this mercy, this grace that God is pouring out on Israel um, through the exodus from Egypt and um, through the whole conquest of the promised land, despite all of that, Israel chooses to defile this covenant through idolatry and unfaithfulness to God. I'm going to read verse 7 over there. I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and, and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. If you read towards the end of verse 8, it says, following worthless idols. Now, when you go on to verse 10 and 11, there's this interesting thing that takes place because what happens is it tells us what Israel did over here was considered such foolishness within this Eastern culture. It was actually unheard of that someone would do something so foolish. And what is this foolishness that we're talking about? It is the fact that someone would abandon fertile soil and fountains of water. Now understand the geographical context for Jeremiah 2 is this, that it is Mideastern arid ground. And we're not talking about Pennsylvania and the countryside where there is farming land all around you and where there's streams of water everywhere. We're talking about arid geographical areas where there is water, but it's scarce. And the foolishness is in this very thing, that why would someone abandon that? And the question is, 
For what did they forsake God? What did they choose instead of God? When you go to verses 12 and 13, it becomes clear. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. That is such strong language. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. I, I, to, I have to take a moment to share this. This message is not about shaming you or even myself. It is not about putting anyone on a guilt trip. This message is actually about helping us realize how easily we forsake that spring of living water, how easily the church forsakes her husband, her bridegroom, Jesus, how easily we forsake our first love, God the Father. And what did Israel forsake God for? They, in verse 13, it says, um, to dig their own cistern, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So this is the thing that, that Israel chose. Instead of being with their God, enjoying fertile soil where water is in abundance, they would rather go and make their own man-made cistern that continually leaks and depend on that. And what is the result of this? You go to verse 14 and 15, it becomes very evident what the result is. Verse 14 poses a question. Is Israel a servant, a slave by birth? Why then has he become plunder? Lions have roared. They have growled at him. They have laid waste his land. His towns are burned and deserted. The, fa the fact is that Israel was not born to become a slave of the things of the world's, uh, world around it. Israel was not created to be plundered by its enemy. And the same is true for us today. We were never created to become a slave to the world and the things of the world around us. We were never created to be plundered by the enemy. Actually, we, we were created to walk in the very death and resurrection of Christ as we read of in Colossians. Nathan has also been speaking on this. We've been created and called to, to walk in the power and the victory of the cross. But we see the opposite happening over here with Israel, and I'm going to for a moment invite you into my thought process. Now, I want to make this very clear. I am probably reading too deep into the scripture when I'm sharing this, and I, I don't recommend that we make a theology out of this, but it's something that caught my eye as I was reading the NIV and this portion of scripture, and my, I couldn't help but notice this. So I'm just allowing you and inviting you into my thought process. Don't you find it so interesting that in Jeremiah verses 2 and 3, Israel is referred to in her feminine form as the bride. And in verse 3, it says, it's referred to Israel as her. And why is it that in all the verses that follow, the Israel is referred to as he, that male gender. And I can't help but just wonder, in the context of everything that is happening in the story, could this possibly be an indication of Israel slowly losing her dependence on her husband, God, 
and slowly starting to rely so much on her own strength and her own leading that she has become a husband unto herself. As I said, it's just a, a thought process. I'm not, I, it's not safe to make this a theology, but I can't help to ask that question. But something else we need to ask is, who is this lion in verse 15? Because it says, lions have roared, they have growled at him, they have laid waste his land, his towns are burnt and deserted. Now, it's interesting, this lion actually directly relates to the Assyrians that came to attack Israel and Judah. And if you want to read the story of the Assyrian oppression and attack, you have to go to 2 Kings 18. Now, 2 Kings 18 is a complex story. If you're going to read it the first time, you're probably going to get a bit confused. But what I want to do is just, because we don't have so much time, I want to take portions, and I want to go over it, just provide you with some context, and it's going to really be broad strokes, just to help us get to a very important point. In verses 1 to 16 in 2 Kings 18, we read of a king called Hezekiah. And Hezekiah is a godly king of Judah. And what Hezekiah does is he breaks the pattern of his father because his father surrendered to this Assyrian pressure that was coming the whole time. And what Hezekiah does is that he rises in a boldness and a courage to, to help see that Judah honors its God again. And how does he achieve this? By cleansing the land and cleansing the people of idolatry. And during this same time, we actually read that Israel is taken captive. And then what we just need to also understand in this section over here is with this current situation with the Assyrians causing this oppression and um, causing this attack, the people in the countryside have now actually come to Jerusalem to, to find um, safety within the walls of Jerusalem. Now let's get to verse 17. And in verse 17, we see that a, Syri a Syrian delegation has been sent by the king of Assyria to go to Jerusalem. And there's a specific commander, his name, I'm probably pronouncing this wrong, is um, Rabshakai. He has come with this delegation to address Hezekiah and the leaders. And this Assyrian delegation, they, they, they come towards Jerusalem, and then, very interesting, they go, and they go and settle in a field called the Washerman's Field. Now, in your translation, it may even call it the Fuller's Field. Now, this name is derived from what happened in that field. This was a, a field that was next to an aqueduct where water was flowing. So the civilians would come and do their laundry. They would come and wash their laundry over here. So the Assyrian leader, this delegation, they know that if they come and stand in this spot, there will be a lot of civilian ears to hear what they want to say. And what the Assyrian delegation intentionally does is, even though they actually usually speak in um, Aramaic, they choose the common language that they know the civilians will understand, which is Hebrew, and they start intimidating and threatening Hezekiah, the leaders, and Judah. And why are they doing this? Because they want the people to be stirred with the fear, knowing that the people will then place the necessary um, pressure on Hezekiah to surrender to the Assyrians. 
And when you get to verse 31 and 32, and this is where the key point that we're working towards, the Assyrian leader, sorry, I want to make a statement. The Assyrian leaders, they were known for employing these psychological tactics in warfare. And actually what they were doing is he's slowly stirring fear in the people and he's luring them into, into a deceptive trap through using very good-sounding words. And let's read what it says in verses 31. This is now the commander of Assyria talking. He says, do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern. I'm pausing for a moment because I want that to hear Tom. Verse 32, until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey. Choose life and not death. Some translations don't mention this, but depending on what you're reading from, the king, it's very interesting that the king of Assyria, his name is Sennacherib, and I'm probably pronouncing this wrong, but if you look at the original meaning of this word, the, the king's name, it means sin. That's one of the meanings, sin. Now, if you look at his commander, the commander's name is Rabshakai. Do you know what that means, cupbearer? So in the story, we have the cupbearer, the chief of sin, coming to the walls of Jerusalem. And what is the message from the cupbearer of sin? He's saying this. He's saying, make peace with me. And then he starts delivering promises. And he says, if you choose to make peace with me, I will make you self-sufficient. Doesn't it sound good? Doesn't it just sound so right? I will make you self-sufficient because you'll get to enjoy your own vine and your own figs. And you'll get to enjoy independence. And then he says this thing, and you'll have your own cisterns to drink from. I want to pause there. Can we get back to what Jeremiah 2 verse 13 says? Could you remember the foolishness of what Israel did? They forsake fertile soil and streams of living water. For what did they forsake it? Jeremiah 2 verse 13 says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. The fact of the matter is that the enemy, the sin and its cupbearer, is standing at the very perimeter of our lives. The enemy is standing at the very perimeter of the church and he's threatening us. But he's also using very persuasive good-sounding, almost true tactics. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to separate us from our source, that fountain of living water. And, and what he's doing, he says, come on, I will teach you how to operate independent of your first love, God. And he's coming to the church and he's he's. he's inviting the church and luring the church into this place where we operate independent of our bridegroom, Jesus. 
And what he wants us to do is to slowly, without us even realizing, in a very subtle way, get so caught up with idolatry that before we know it, we've messed up this marriage vow and we've invited foreign husbands into our marriage vow with God. Let's go back to John 4, verse 16, Jesus speaking. He told her, go call your husband and come back. And then she answered, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. I'm asking all of us, including myself, what husbands, what foreign husband, husbands have we invited into our lives? I'm asking the church, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not speaking to just providence. I'm speaking to the church globally. What husbands, what bridegrooms has the church allowed into our midst? And my challenge is this thing. We need to get back to our first love, to that source of living water, that fountain of living water. We should stop drinking from a cistern which is man-made and that keeps on leaking when we can have a fountain available. The, the purpose of a cistern was to be able to have a water source separated from any natural sources. Why would we want stale water if we can have the fresh living water? Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus says this. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. I told you this, John 4 has kept me captivated for a few weeks now. And the same question I'm asking you, I've been asking myself, what has been our first love in this season of our lives? Are we busy drinking from our own man-made systems, slowly growing so independent from God? Or are we dipping our hands into the free-flowing living water of God? I was a senior in school, made some very stupid social choices, thinking, oh, I'm wise, you know, I know how to do this. Meanwhile, my dad and mom were fully aware of everything I was busy with. And despite that knowledge, my dad doesn't come and sit me down. Actually, in one of the most beautiful conversations I remember to this day, my dad sits down and he doesn't point fingers. He doesn't cast accusations. You know what my dad says to me in that moment? He says, Marcel, don't you think it's about time that you start aligning yourself for God's great purpose and destiny on your life? And in that moment, he didn't have to say anything else. He didn't call me out. He didn't insult me. He didn't, he didn't humiliate me. He reminded me of how great my calling and my purpose is. And in that moment where my, my spirit and my mind was overtaken by the greatness of what God has called me in, 
Poor choices and sin was no longer an interest. And I remember within that same day, I actually picked up the phone. And as a senior, I called my friends and I said, hey, I'm sorry, I won't be attending this party, these parties anymore. And actually, if you see less of me in this season, this is the reason why. As I said, this message is not to shame you. This message is not to put you on some sort of guilt trip. This message is to say, hey, there's a man waiting at the well. And all you need to do is you just need to get back to the well. And you need to just go and sit and just allow him to speak to you. And we, we love, especially in Western culture, we love to use all the stereotypical examples. You know, we, get, we talk about, oh, your love for sports and money, and we throw in addictions and all those things. It's the truth. There are many people stuck in that, and it's a sin, and it's wrong, and we need to be liberated. But there are these small, subtle idolatries we allow, allow into our lives that we get caught up, and we're actually gathering foreign husbands because we start serving these things. Our love for these things, we're more infatuated with these, for these things than we are with our love for God. And all I am inviting you into, and all, this is what I've done, is just to get back to the well, because there's already a great man sitting there waiting for you, and just start talking to him. And what he will do is, he will remind you of your great calling. He will remind you of your great destiny. And when you are mesmerized with the greatness of what God has called you in, you no longer want to be stuck with the things of this world. And in a moment, you become liberated and you are free to walk into the greater purpose. And you know what? That day, that woman who others frowned upon, who others um, called names and pushed aside, that woman was transformed, and we read that she goes back, and she stirs up a revival in that area. Now you and I going back to the well and just meeting with Jesus and learning to talk to him and just listen to him, if we allow him to transform our lives, who knows what area we'll unlock for the greatest revival we can ever imagine. That's it. That's as simplistic as it is. I really don't have any much, any, I don't have much more to say. I want to ask you for a moment, just close your eyes, and we're just going to pray this prayer. Father God, thank you that your son has that he embarked on this ministry where everything he does and he says points towards you. And Lord God, in a moment, we, we, in this moment, we just want to come back to the well. And we want to just encounter Jesus so that he can point us back to our first love, you. So my humble prayer is this, that our ears will be open to hear and that we will humble ourselves just to, to hear your voice, and that we will open our lives, that your presence will minister to us and transform us, Lord. Change us to the extent that we become the key that unlocks areas to your greater purpose of revival and the outpouring of your great work. And we pray that in your name. Amen. I'd like to thank you so much for joining us. 
Um, Providence family, thank you for all the support you have been showing us through this time. For those that have been watching from across the nation and internationally, we're looking forward to connect with you, and we want to create a seat at this table where you are welcome to come and join us, even though you are, we are um, physically in different places. But we want to welcome you and say um, we look forward to meeting you, and we want to invite you to our, um, the next time that we uh, or the next opportunity that we get to. Just just open the word together. Thanks so much. Be blessed and have a great evening. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that this word will bring light to dark places, life to dead places, hope to desperate places, and heaven to earthly places.